Okay, welcome to our first ever podcast on what it's like to start a development software company. And and I guess I shouldn't just say it's just software. We do plenty of other engineering and mechanical and everything. And I am Josh Hintz, and I've got with me Tanner Barney. Tanner Barney, and we are going to be going through a number of different episodes of what it's like actually running a software development shop. So we're going to take you through our experiences of what it's like starting a software development company. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Josh, you're the one who started this whole thing, right? I mean, well, I wouldn't say started. It's not like I originally set out to be like, you know, when I graduate from college, I'm going to start a software development company, but it definitely was a, a path through it and stuff. And if you were plan on sharing how it actually went and how we created it, so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty interesting how it grew organically. I, you know, I just kind of look back and it, it was definitely wasn't the, the initial inspiration that we had, Right. you know, it was, it, it's kind of morphed and it's, it's pretty exciting to see it grow from that. But I mean, yeah, I think we're up to around 20 different employees in the, in this, from developers to project managers, QA and all the administration staff. And it's, it's definitely grown from the original Tanner who was here is, was our first employee, our first software developer. And you're still in school while you're, you know, working with us just a year before graduation or so. Yeah. Yeah. I worked, I, I worked full time with you guys while finishing my senior year in school. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot of work, but it was super exciting. I had, I could see the, you know, the vision and kind of what, what we were building. It didn't, from my perspective, it didn't actually matter what we were going to do, but we were going to be successful in it because we had good leadership, good vision, very smart, technical, talented people who could accomplish whatever it was we put our mind on. Yeah. So, so so you asked me kind of the origin story. So let me just go through that real quick for the listeners out there. And so I worked at a company that was an engineering firm where we made radars for unmanned drones and my partner, McKay who will be on the show at in future dates. He was one of the employees that worked there with us. And it was kind of interesting working with McKay because I ran a lot of the engineering department and McKay came in and his background was web development, which is an area that I hardly ever spent time in. I was a strict kind of C, C++, just straight down to the, to the metal programmer. And he came in with web development experience and I just kind of blew it off and like, oh, well, you just, you can make web pages with it. You know, whoop to do you know, you can't, can't program on a radar and, and over this journey, I've, I've learned, you know, my lessons that you can do quite a bit with, uh, with JavaScript in the web world. But yeah, so the, the reason why is both McKay and myself are very entrepreneurial. We always wanted to start our own kind of companies. And he had a side gig that he was working on trying to, to make happen. I've done the same to myself, but the, the, the impetus where we actually started working together as a company was we actually had the opportunity to do virtual reality. So one of the employees at the company we both worked at was one of the first early beta purchasers of the HTC Vive. So it was a VR headset. And I just remember the day that he came in and he just sent out a message to everybody at the company say, Hey, I've set up my VR upstairs and come up here and try it. This was like late, mid, late. 2016, right? Yeah. When that came out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I think probably springtime or so of, of 2016 mm-hmm. when kind of the first virtual reality headsets came out. And so uh, I went up there. I remember I was working with McKay at the time. We both kind of went up there 
and tried it out. And, and we actually got to play a game where you're shooting zombies and everything. And it was just mind blowing. And as I pulled off the headset, I just looked around and I saw a line of people just waiting to try it out, you know, taking time out of their day off the clock to, uh, to try virtual reality. And it was, it was just amazing, you know? Yeah. I remember those, that those early days, you know, when the vibe first came out like that and man, it was for anybody who hasn't done it, it is, it is an incredible experience. Your first time putting that headset on and getting that immersion. Right. You know? And so I remember going and kind of talking to McKay. I'm like, man, I wonder if anybody would pay to, to try this, you know, kind of like an arcade kind of thing. And, and we kept on talking and I remember talking to him on the drive home. And then that night we just did a real quick, little quick, simple spreadsheet of, you know, how many people would have to be in a arcade, you know, the expense that you would have renting out a, a space and, and everything and just kind of look at the numbers. And it was just like, well, I think we can actually maybe make some profit, you know? Yeah. And, and the amazing thing was within a few days of, of that, we had contacted a, a mall. We had went and met with the mall management to look at spaces. We had kind of looked at how we would acquire different headsets because remember they were in like this pre-order phase and you just couldn't get your hands on it. And so the only options really was just paying the inflated price off of eBay. And, um, yeah, they were, they were super exclusive. I mean, no one could get their hands on mm -hmm. them. So, yeah. And so the, just the, the wheels kept turning and kind of long story short, within three weeks, we had actually launched and started a virtual reality arcade in the mall. You know, we took off all of our PTO and just spent days setting it up. And we had one of the first, if not the first virtual reality arcade, we called it VR junkies that was in a actual mall. And we had, I think three headsets set up at the time and we just started selling time on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember actually walking by that store. I didn't even know, you know, like I had I'd heard about the headsets and stuff, but I had never seen one or felt one. And then I saw this, the store up there and I was just blown away. Mm -hmm. Like, holy cow. I mean, it just came out. You can't even get these things. How did you guys start a store? Yeah. You know, it was impressive. Yeah. I think so, one of the things that kind of came out of it, you know, relating back to the software discussion here is that when we first started going we just thought, you know, Hey, let's just buy everything and we'll put it up. And one of McKay's friends or neighbors asked him, he's like, well, how are you going to license the software? And we're like, license the software. Yeah. That's probably a good thing. You know, <laughs> you, you know, you can't just expect to go and rent a number of Blu-rays from, or buy a number of Blu-rays from Walmart and open up a movie theater and just start charging admission for it. You know, you, yeah. you definitely get shut down and slap pretty hard. Yeah. So what did you guys do? So we actually said both of us were, you know, software developers, McKay being more strong in, in web development and myself, you know, in writing kind of desktop application stuff, we decided, Hey, what if we actually created software that tracked the usage of play with, you know, who's actually being used it. And so we can actually time out how many minutes somebody was in and then send some money back to the developers. So, mm. and, and actually when we first reached out to a couple of the developers, you know, that we found a number of the games that we liked, we found their contact information, found their website, found their email, sent them an email and said like, Hey, can we pay to use your game in our arcade? And the, the response was interesting. I mean, it was diverse. It was some of them said, oh yeah, just use them. I don't care. You know, kind of thing. Some of them said, yeah, we're, we're happy with that. Why don't you just send us, I don't know, like 
50 bucks per headset per month, you know, and yeah. some of them were, you know, like, yeah, we, we just don't want to do that right now kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but what we realized is like 50 bucks per headset per month. What if nobody likes our game, you know, so we're taking a huge risk up front. And so if there was a way that we could actually track the usage of that game and actually had people pay for it, or we paid the developer based on that usage, then it becomes a cost of goods sold model versus just a liability. And it was, we proposed that and a number of them did it. So now we actually had to step through building the software to actually track that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there because you have like the, the time usage per headset, per booth, all of that stuff per game. Um, plus like the, the licensing agreements with the game developers and like the, the legal ramifications that could be associated with that. I mean, that's a pretty big undertaking, especially while you both had full-time jobs. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we actually did it, you know, we pulled it off. We created a, a cloud-based system that would, you know, store all the information that of, of the arcade and, and track it. Um, and the good thing about being one of the first to it is you're in kind of this blue ocean where a little splash sends out, you know, huge ripples across. And so we were able to get, uh, call up a number of different TV shows and, and news stations. And they came down, they interviewed us. We got some national coverage, which really put us out there. And we started having people that were looking at opening up their own arcade, start contacting us and saying like, Hey, how are you guys doing it? How are you running it? And so we were able to say, well, we just kind of wrote our own software. And the, obviously the first question is like, well, can we, we pay you to use your software? Yeah. yeah. I imagine not everybody has that skill set that you and you and McKay bring to the table. So, yeah. Yeah. So then we started thinking like, well, maybe there's, there's some money in actually licensing out our software and everything. Again, we we're both working full time. And so we're, we, we obviously continue to develop when we could. But we realized we needed to bring in somebody else that we could work on full time. And I just remember McKay being like, Hey, I've got a, a cousin who's a, you know, looking at graduating soon and programming. Let's, let's have him come in and interview and stuff. And so that's where we met Tanner. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's, that was my first introduction. I was working in another company full time while going to school. Um, and I got this call from McKay and he kind of told me what was going on, that you guys both were working full time, trying to just kind of bootstrap this thing yourself and get it up and going. And, you know, I just, I remember like the, I don't know there's a lot of excitement, especially in the space. I mean, it was really cool. No one else was doing anything like it. It was really interesting, like trying to convince my wife to leave a, a decent salary job with insurance and benefits and all of that stuff to go kind of be a solo guy Mm -hmm. for the most part while you guys, you know, (laughs) basically worked to pay for me to build this system. It it was a pretty big, pretty big jump, but it paid off. It was totally worth it Mm. for me personally grew a tremendous amount. I just remember walking into that, that old room that you guys had rented out just at that same building. And, uh, I was just, I walked in and I was like, oh man, what am I doing? Like, this is crazy. Sat down with you and you and McKay. And yeah, I mean, it was, I, to me, it just clicked. It was like, okay, well, this is it. Yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. So, so fast forwarding a little bit, we had Tanner come on and he helped develop and establish that. We then continue to grow the VR junkies arcade. And we started actually licensing out the name. Yeah. We actually started having franchises and 
multiple locations across the U.S. We had a couple international too that popped up. Yeah, right. yeah. Canada was one. Hawaii's not international, but I, it's, 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 it's not it's, continental. It's, you know? Yeah, so there, which was, that was always fun. One of the things we'd always do when we'd open up a new franchise that we go out there and help them set up in their last couple of days before they actually do their grand opening and then be there as part of their grand opening. So getting a trip out to Hawaii was always nice. Yeah. yeah. Another group in New Zealand open up a, a virtual reality VR junkies mm -hmm. locations. And so that grew along with the software needs of what we had to do to kind of manage and monitor all these different locations in there. Yeah. What was really cool and I think really set the software up was that the whole time, I mean, we still ran an arcade, the original arcade, mm -hmm. you know, so we, we really learned what worked and what didn't from a, the customer side too, you know, it's really easy in software to, as a, you know, people should know, at least you make assumptions and, you know, they're sometimes right there, sometimes way off base. But the fact that we did it, I mean, we were our own customer building the tool. I mean, it really helped us get ahead of everybody because we had the, the capacity and capability to build those things out that we needed. Mm -hmm. And it, it was awesome. I mean, it really set us apart, but yeah. So VR junkies was growing, right? Yep. And then. Then we continued on and we decided that, well, there's other locations that can't necessarily franchise. So establish family fun centers, trampoline parks, all that stuff. They're not going to rename themselves as VR junkies. And so we decided, what if we actually private white labeled a virtual reality installation into their, into their location. And so now they have VR, but they've got our software systems. They've got all that kind of stuff. And so we actually renamed or started another company called private label VR and that had more software needs and, and everything. And we, we were trying to look at how we can actually grow our, our development pool there. So we actually hired a consultant. His name was Jan and he actually helped us find other software deals that might actually bring some income in. And, and this guy's well-connected and he had a number of people that he knew and uh, we were introduced to a, a company that specifically needed software development needs. Do you remember this one? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. This was, it was really kind of an interesting play. So this was Finney's build, mm -hmm. right? They needed a video commerce system with real-time video streaming, live purchasing, for, all in a mobile app. Oh yeah. Yeah. All in a, a mobile app build plus a whole admin suite to support the system. It was, it was kind of a, a big, exciting task. Right. You know, and, and more so than we could take on ourselves at our current, cause McCain myself was still doing full-time work. Tanner's our only full-time software developer. Supporting all of supporting. private label and VR junkies. Yep. Yep. So we actually <laughs> was able to sign a contract with this this company and be able to get some kind of stable-ish revenues such that we had another friend that we were willing to, you know, hire on and have them work on this software at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That was a Tanner mm -hmm. as well. Another Tanner. Yeah. So we had the two Tanners. Yeah. It was, it, we were kind of synonymous for a little while there, mm -hmm. but yeah, he, he really got heads down on the, the mobile app, mm -hmm. you know, for this, uh, this group. And. I helped on the back end a lot and it gets getting stuff going, but we had some hard problems to solve. And that's, I think, kind of where you started to step in quite a bit, particularly when we got into the video streaming aspect of it, right? right. Live video streaming, low latency. I think the original task from 
the company that was hiring us out of is we wanted it to be a replacement for what they were already doing with Facebook live video. Yep. Facebook was starting to crack down on e-commerce or MLMs that were trying to, you know, use their, their live video streaming service. And so the, the requirement was that it had to be better. Facebook usually had a delay of 30 seconds from when the video was shown and somebody is holding up a piece of article of clothing to when the, the, you'd start seeing the comments come in. And so our requirement was, Hey, we want this down to like a second or two or less of, yeah. of video latency. Yeah. Well, and the hard part with that too, is their old paradigm was, uh, these, these consumers would just comment in the comment section on their live video that has a delay mm-hmm. of, oh, well, I want this one. And then, you know, it would put the burden on that, that seller to go through the comments after the video and be sure. like, okay, who was the first one to say that they wanted this article? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was, it was a really kind of daunting event that these, these women had to put on. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah. it was crazy. Yep. And so over time, I think the whole experience from when we were first signed on to when we had the actual software launch. So I think if I remember correctly, correctly, this would have been 2017 mm-hmm. now, and it would have been probably around June is when we hired the second Tanner. Yeah. And we were had, I think they're, they, they call it a back office or admin suite that was launched by around December time for that. So an entire software suite that would actually manage all their inventory counts, their sales, their, their reps, all that kind of stuff. We did that by December. And then the app was probably launched around January, February of the following year. So kind of 2018. Yeah. Super, super early into 2018 is when we, we did that launch, Mm -hmm. but it was interesting. I mean, you know, we had experience in VR and tracking game time and, you know, minute tracking with licensing, but I never built an e-commerce system, Mm -hmm. you know, especially the warehouse and inventory management with multi-levels and yeah. And the chaos with that. I mean, it, it's, it was exciting. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this particular contract is the way that we structured it for some of our listeners out there who are wondering how, how contracts might work with software development companies. There's a couple different ways you can go about it. And we decided to, to kind of build at a kind of a lower reduced cost. You can do, obviously you can do hourly where you have just a fixed amount per hour, and it's just however many hours it takes. You could do kind of a firm fix and say, we will complete this project for X number of dollars, you know, and, and then it's on the developers to make sure they come in at a reasonable time and they don't, you know, delay and stuff. With us on this one, we just received a monthly retainer. I think it was like $20,000 a month to, yeah, to it do wasn't it. a lot. But we actually, well, the reason why we were able to reduce the prices we actually negotiated at front is that we get to keep the intellectual property of whatever gets developed. And the, the, the person that the company that hired us on was okay with that. As long as they had two year exclusivity carve out on, you know, their certain industries. And so they're obviously in the women's clothing, women's fashion. So they, they listed a number of companies that they viewed as competitors that they didn't want this technology actually landing in on yeah well because our intent was to take that ip and build our own system relative to that right Mm -hmm. resell it out to these other companies because at the time facebook was kind of shadow banning people and companies so it was almost impossible to find these events unless you had the direct link right right so we were trying to really solve that niche problem 
Yep, exactly. And the, the thing that I think that we're trying to do is we're still trying to be like, we do not want to be a dev company. Yeah. <laughs> we need to find a product. We need to find something. Let's use again, this software development, you know, this income to, mm-hmm. to create something else, you know, and that, that'll yeah. be a reoccurring theme as we, we talk through some of these other experiences. Yeah. But at the end, hey, we, we, we embraced the software development company. Yeah, we fought it for a long time, but eventually, yeah, just embrace the nature of it. Yeah. It was a good call. So how did we get other contracts? You know, that might be a question that we, we might have that other people would have of us. You know, how did you go from, well, just you got introduced to one and you found another. And that really, I think, came down to word of mouth. We didn't really have any advertising. We didn't have that because again, we didn't want to be, you know, a development company, but we still needed income to be able to obviously support and pay for what we we're doing and everything. And so, yeah. Do you remember some of the, the other ones that we kind of took on afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. So it, that's always like kind of the, the interesting part of it is how do you get your name out there to, to get work? You know, it's like whether you're doing freelance work or a dev shop, I mean, there, there's a lot of correlation there. I mean, that word of mouth, I think one of the the next ones that we had come on was that route. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So route came, came to us. I don't remember how the recommendation came to you. Jan again. Was it yeah, Jan? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So route came on and it was, the build wasn't incredibly crazy. Yeah. The expectation, it was working with Shopify and putting in a custom plugin into the Shopify system for package insurance, yeah. third party package insurance, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And we worked on that system. It was actually McKay and I for quite a while getting into the the weeds of that thing and trying to get some, what was it, reading their emails and stuff to. Yeah. Yeah. For, for the listeners the out there. Yeah. The route is a, is a Utah startup that has done phenomenally well. They were essentially the idea was very simple, right? It's yeah. let's add a checkbox when you check out of Shopify or any of these kind of large e-commerce platforms. And it would, it's for insurance on your shipping. And it was the lesser of $1 or 1% of the packages. It could completely have changed by now. So the, the great thing about that is if you, you know, had porch pirates come and steal your package or anything like that, you can submit a claim and they would, you know, essentially refund or get you a new product. And so really simple idea, but executed really well. And they had some phenomenal growth there kind of one of the, the uh, Utah's unicorns you know, oh, yeah. lately they, they, they hit the billion dollar valuation a little while ago. And so we were able to come in to that company and they actually had a software team and they're on the throes of just a mutiny, right? Quitting yeah, and everything. I remember us going in there and we kind of interviewed the, the, the kind of the solo remaining developer in yeah. there and we, we talked to them and, and, and basically they were they, they, they had a lot of frustrations and we were like, well, we're going to come in and help. And the next thing we know, we, we got the call that, yeah, this person left as well. Yep. Too. So, so they lost their entire dev team. Dev team. Yep. yep. And so we came in and, and continued to, to get it going. They were running on AWS servers and getting all their software. And the thing that you were, you and McKay were working on is they wanted to, uh, to not only do the shipping insurance, but they wanted to become the, the end all for tracking your packages. So having a mobile app that was yep. showing where your app is and everything. And so 
you guys had to write parsers for emails, right? Yep. Yeah. We had to do SMTP tie-ins into all of the big providers and then parse through it. I mean, everyone's this, this giant catalog of emails mm -hmm. to look for certain identifying words, phrases, anything like that, tracking, tracking number, information yeah. that would pull out and extract shipping details that would then be fed into the app. So from a consumer, you'd have that one-stop shop, regardless of whether you bought on Amazon or eBay or whomever. Um, and you know, it was all in that one place. So yeah, we, we started working on that. I remember bringing in some of the route had started hiring some developers, mm -hmm. right? And we brought them into our office for a few months and really kind of trained them on how to, on some good coding practices and standards and really tried to help build the foundation underneath some of the developers that they were trying to bring on board. Cause it was, it was a little wild. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was something. <laughs> but again, we still did not want to be, you know, a software yeah. dev shop. And so we decided to, to take that that IP that we created with the Pipney and the live video streaming. And we started a company called OnTrack and which later was, you know, renamed to Vendati. And we started to take that software and actually go out and try to sell it as a SaaS blade to a number of different MLMs. You remember some of the first ones that kind of signed on? Oh yeah. Yeah. We had True Vision was one of the first ones that was really, really interesting. We got a lot of deep, deep tie-in into these back offices. So for those of you who aren't aware, the way that these, the MLM industries work is there's a bunch of, bunch of big back office groups that focus pretty heavily on the commissions engine for MLMs, right? The nature of an MLM industry is kind of live and die by their commissions. Um, and that's really what those organizations want to be known for is the commissions. They usually provide a front end, but it's pretty awful most of the time. So that's not what they want to do. That's not their focus. They just have to provide it. So we really wanted to bolt in and provide our app, provide the Vendati app that provided the real-time video streaming, real-time purchasing, kind of all of those wins. It restreamed out to Facebook right? All of those successful wins into the MLM space. So we started tying in really, really heavily into some of those big backends, direct scaling, Zego, input tracks. I mean, there, there was tons of them. I think we were up to like 10 or 12 of them. Yeah. So. But that came at a cost, right? I mean, oh, you absolutely. know, the, the amount of development effort to actually achieve that was quite a bit. And so at the time we said, Hey, let's go out and find some investor funding and take that on and hire up a team that's, that's working on that. And so we went all in and we actually, you know, raise around three quarters of a million dollars and a number, we, we basically double tripled our staff yeah. that was in there. And we basically built a number of different things. And, and the industry is kind of interesting in the fact that it was really easy to get people to say, yes, you know, they, they, they love the flashiness of the live video. They, they, they started, it was a really cool kind of tool, but we, as we went through and implemented a number of things, we kind of found that each integration was its own beast and its own set of challenges. And everybody that we had signed up wanted things done in a different way. So we just were sinking tons of time and, and resources into getting it just the way that they wanted it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's not just the way that the backend works, but it's the way that the business works too. Lots of rules. Absolutely. It's right. a ridiculous amount of rules and variations as far as how things work. What, I mean, even on the same back end, you could have two companies that are entirely different. So mm -hmm. that 
one integration didn't actually solve the problem for everybody mm-hmm. as we had hoped it would. So we sunk a, a tremendous amount of time and money into the building some of those things out. Yep. Now we were successful in that we launched the app into a number of different companies. Mm-hmm. It did fairly well, but as we found out, not everybody wants to be on a live video, you know, yeah. not, you know, it's, it's challenging to, to kind of want to put on a show and have your face be on there. I'd say 90% of the people that work in these network marketing companies, they just, you know, they sign up either to purchase for themselves or they want to just maybe have some of their close friends and family just kind of purchase through them. But you have a, a few top performers, but by and large, the live video just wasn't getting used the way that we expected it to. No, no. It, I mean, it sounded great and it was sexy and just, you know, flashy. It looked good, but it wasn't, it didn't fit into these businesses processes, their paradigms. We were trying to and inject this, this flashy thing that they just didn't have the people that would do it. Right. So I, I remember sitting down and we were watching through people's live streams and, you know, I mean, we had scaled, I know you had spent a ton of time scaling out that system for, for the real-time video streaming and stress testing. And we just, I mean, it was a little disheartening, you know, for me at least where there just wasn't a lot of people using it. And like, we'd put in so much time mm-hmm. and effort to get that thing working, yeah. you know? So while we're having revenues come in, our expenses far exceeded what we actually had to have happen. And this was kind of end of 2019, you know, we still had people on it and we're doing that. And then we came into kind of January and this thing called COVID just, you started hearing a little bit about it. Our, our virtual reality, private label VR was doing really well. We had a lot of contracts kind of set up to, to be able to have a number of installs and be very profitable, but we're still just bleeding a lot of cash. Right. And again, our whole goal was we didn't want to be a dev shop. And so we were, we were counting on these, these different ventures to actually fund it. And then March hit and we, weirdest thing happened. We just started having some of these contracts for virtual reality be either put on pause or completely canceled and, and go on hold and well, entertainment kind of died, you know, kind of died. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Nobody knew what was going to really happen. You know, the, the yeah. two week shutdown that was going to be you know, enough. And we thought, you know, we actually had a couple of virtual reality contracts that just like, well, let's just put it on hold until, you know, this, this shutdown is over and then we'll, then we'll complete the purchase. We'll send you the money and everything. And it just got to the point of like, oh, yeah, these, this is not going to happen, but we were still hemorrhaging money too on Vendati was the huge pain point too. You know, our biggest revenue stream just stopped. Yep. Absolutely. And so with that, we had to make some hard decisions and we had to kind of essentially put Vendati on hold and start saying, what can we do to bring in income immediately? You know, and, and VR was on hold too, which was, you know, funding quite a bit too. And the main thing that we really tried to do is not let go of our staff, right? We, we obviously knew that VR was going to be a long time to recover and so here's the, the funny thing is one of the things that we had developed as part of our VR is we got really good at powder coating. And for, for those who are not sure what powder coating is, that's where you take metal and you apply an electrical charge to it and you shoot out a gun that actually positively charges these, these paint molecules of, of powder dust and it sticks to the metal. 
you throw it in an oven, it cooks it, and it it basically is a way of painting metal, right? Yeah. So um, you had a bunch of software developers, yeah, trying to paint metal. Yeah. <laughs> we had you know high school kids that would help us and and everything, and and we were basically running a powder coating service for virtual reality. And so when virtual reality essentially got put on hold, we said, what can we do now? Well, we can actually start a, a, a powder coating shop, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was really nice. And that's, what's kind of interesting is doing it all ourselves, mm-hmm. right? I mean, for v- VR, it was a turnkey solution. So we found that it was better to just build the booths ourselves in-house instead of ordering from a third party. Yeah. And so it really helped us, helped us figure out a lot of the logistics associated with that process. So again, like just this, this kind of organic build and the whole time the dev side is just, well, we'll do this third party work as a means to an end. Yeah. Right. We're never, we're not doing the dev shop. Yeah. This is just a means to an end. Yep. I mean, little teaser, we, we do now have a dev shop. Yeah. So, so we'll get there eventually. But we, we actually took that powder coating. We started a, a true powder coating shop. We rented out a building. We took the employees that we would have had to let go with, with VR and shifted them over to doing full-time powder coating. So we, again, we wanted to develop software systems that would make management of this a lot easier. We had a pool of developers. And so we started a admin site that we can manage orders. We can invoice, we could track the flow. We wanted to put a lot of metrics onto the, the entire process. So we knew how long it took for this one article to be completely done as far as paint time, as far as cook time, as far as how much material it actually costs to actually produce that. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was, how can we leverage the existing staff that we're, you know, we don't want to let go in an industry that has no tech and apply that. Yeah. What was great about doing all these kind of different ventures is we had to always consider cash to development time and juggle those things. Right. And because everything we've done other than the, you know, the MLM live video has been bootstrap cash. So cash that we've made off of our other types of stuff. And so I, I think that really helps us when we actually do software development projects to really actually work with the, the customer and the client and, and really say, Hey, we should probably cut back on this. We don't need to do this kind of thing to, to have the same performance. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a lot of what's kind of, I don't know, I think established the mentality that we have today mm-hmm. is we've been, we've been that person over and over and over. And that's kind of the, the perspective that we've taken from development is being that partner. Cause we've only really, I mean, yes, we've had some contracts here and there up to this point, but we were in a dev shop, right? We were mm-hmm. working on our own internal stuff. Yeah. So we were always the dev partners. We always worked with the client because yeah. the client was us. So that was the, the perspective that kind of followed us through a lot of this. Yeah. So here's an interesting dev project. Do you remember the autonomous lawnmower project? Yeah, yeah, that one was really cool. So we were, I had never worked on hardware mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, to build this autonomous system, the way that they were previously is you'd have to bury ground wires, mm-hmm. right? And then the, the lawnmower robot would follow these ground wires for your cut paths. Yeah. But we were kind of tasked with kind of a, a really different perspective. 
right? Yep. Yep. So we had a, a really good acquaintance that actually started a company that made RTK a real-time kinematic GPS. And for those who don't know, essentially that's a GPS that can be down to the, you know, centimeter or two position of accuracy. Mm-hmm. And so he was developed a sensor and had a really great GPS and wanted to move into robotics. And they started using this as a platform for guiding different robotics around. And they were making an entire system that would do visual cues and motor wheel encoders and GPS and basically make a really smart autonomous lawnmower so that you didn't have to go and bury those, those wires, but they were not app developers. And so they, they asked us to, Hey, can you make a mobile app that you can actually control, drive around, measure out your yard and say, Hey, this is, this is the region we want you to cut and everything. So it was actually a a really fun project. Do you remember some of the kind of the technologies we, we use with that? Yeah, yeah, it was it was really cool. Uh, trying to tie in with uh, with the base stations, a lot of those pieces we had. What was that? The the type of antenna. I know you and McKay had gone back and forth quite a bit mm-hmm. on the the range of the antenna, and it was convenient because we both have a lot of experience in radar. Yeah, you know, so it, it fit really well into the wheelhouse. Yep, we and the. The key communication path that we actually used was Bluetooth low energy or DLE. And so I remember one of the first applications we wrote for them was a basically a game pad on your iPhone. So you could actually use your thumb and steer around and drive around this, this autonomous lawnmower. It was actually really fun. And then you would then go into a mode where you actually drove using that game pad, the path, the, the, the region boundary of your lawn and then hit go and and they had a whole bunch of planning stuff that would then take that region and, and basically mow it back and forth. But again, yeah. another another example of we we just basically fell into another project from word of mouth, which you'll find is a very common way of how do you start a, a software development company is you gotta you gotta know people, you gotta have some network, you gotta do well with your That's, current clients you so deliver. you get those referrals and everything. And then so by the end of this, and we're now kind of full into kind of the, the COVID pandemic, we realize maybe working at a dev shop and actually trying to, uh, to embrace it a little, embrace it is, yeah. is, is a good way of, of going, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I think it had hit us enough times that we, we realized finally that, you know, we can make money there. Mm-hmm. There's, we're really good at problem solving. You know, regardless whether it's hardware or whether it's software, web tech, right? We can solve problems, right? And people have a lot of problems to solve. And so once we made that kind of mind shift of like, well, all right, let's be one of the best development software shops out there in the world. We, once we made that shift, we said, what can we do to improve upon how we do stuff, how we deliver to the clients, how we, we measure and track and all that kind of stuff. And that's what this, that this podcast is all going to be about. Those are the things that we're going to try to cover. Basically our lessons going through that, some of our hardships with clients, some of our hardships with contracting systems that we put in place, hiring, for example, you know, is, is a task of its own, you know, getting the right people onto your team and and then sometimes firing and and laying off and, and everything is, is those are the, the topics that we want to cover in this podcast series and, and drive, dive down into them, you know, even more significantly. Yeah. Yeah. We really want to help kind of just 
talk about our experiences with it, the information that we found to be very helpful, both for us internally and for the client. There are things that we can do and provide that really help give both of us a, a mutual win. And I can, as we had mentioned, that word of mouth is kind of what we live and die by. Um, you have to, you have to perform and they have to have a good experience. You have to have a good experience and make enough money that you don't die. So no, we're excited for, we're excited to share our experiences with you guys and help you participate in, in the journey that we have on this, you know, this development experience. Absolutely. All right. That about wraps it up. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then next time. See you guys. Thanks.